Good morning. We're in Judges chapter 4 today. There's a lot of names. I've got a lot of markings. Looks like a phonics lesson in here, so bear with me. Okay, um, I'm reading from the ESV. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ahad died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Verse 4, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up for, to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abino, Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at, the Mount, at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Verse 8, Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Verse 10, And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pinched his tent as far away as the oak of Zayonanim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera had told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron and all the men who were with him from Harosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord rooted Sisera and all his chariots and his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg 
into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into, he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead and the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. First thing I'm thankful for today is that she chose to read. <laughs> Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, um, we thank you for your word. Um, Father, I pray that your word in one, one aspect will sit heavy on our hearts as it convicts us when we are looking for our salvation, Father, or our uh, sustainment in the things of this world around our own powers. Father, your word teaches that you are our, our provider, our sustainer. And Father, I pray that that will be humbling to us, but also very encouraging. Uh, Father, I thank you, especially for this morning when we have uh, testimony from around the world, Lord, that you are indeed our sustainer. Father, thank you for uh, bringing that to us this morning. Father, I, may that, I pray that your word will be encouraging to us. Father, may you give us, uh, th through your word, may you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. I also am thankful that she chose to read. Um, we are in Judges, and uh, the subtitle of uh, our series on the book of Judges as we walk through chapter by chapter, tap, chapter is false gods. And today, what I want to talk about truly is uh, God, to God be the glory, and we will see that unpacked. And i got to jump right in, because not only are we going to cover chapter 4, um, we're only reading chapter 4, um, to which you said thank you, and, but we're also covering chapter 5 uh, today, and so we're doing that for a reason, uh, and that is ultimately this, but before I get there, i gotta, I got to kind of set this up, right? Um, I think in this passage, if we're going to talk about God having glory, if we're going to talk about sing that as we just sang about it, if you saw it subtly through most of the songs we just sang, we're really all about God getting glory in our lives. If we see it here, Deborah says to Barak, you will not get, glo get glory in all of this, and instead it is God subduing Jabin the king in verse 23. It is God getting the glory in this whole thing, and I, I, I have to remind you, your main purpose in life is to glorify God. In a world where we are marketing ourselves to our friends, they already like you. You don't have to keep marketing yourself to them. They already like you. It's fine. In a world where we're marketing ourselves to one another online, we must understand there's a subtlety there that we want glory and credit for how our life is going, but we are called to give God the glory. It's why he made you. It's why he formed you. It says in Isaiah 43 that you were formed for his glory. And part of that formation isn't just the act of creation of your life, but it is every nuance of your story that is forming you into a person that will give God glory more and more as you live. That is your purpose. You want to know why you're here? To honor God, to glorify Him, to give Him credit, to point heavenward in the midst of trial and in the midst of triumph. 
That's what we're here for. But i got to set this up because we have to see what's happening here in chapters 4 and 5. And what we see, if we were to read chapter 5, what we would see is that in chapter 4, you have the historical account of what happened. How is it that Israel was set free through, judge, through a judge named Deborah? How, was, how were they set free ultimately from this reign of terror of Sisera and the king of the Canaanites. How were they set free in all of this? That's the historical event. And then in chapter 5 is a theological song. It's a worship song. It's a worship song about how it is and why it is that God secured the victory for his people. So we've got, we've got prose and poetry. We've got history, and then we've got a song right? We've got really two perspectives that we need, though we can only read one account. We need both. We need to understand what it is that has happened in our lives, the historical account. But how much more do we need to understand what God was up to in those events? See, chapter four is the history. Chapter five is the why. What was God up to in all of this? And so we'll illumine chapter four with chapter five as we go. I want to remind you of uh, that we are in the midst of the judges cycle, right? Um, if you've got that picture, could you show that picture of the judges cycle? Is it up? Yeah, okay, perfect. Um, so you can see that we're in the midst of this cycle where what do the Israelites do? They, they, they have idolatry, right? They're worshiping Baal and Asheroth and all that. They get oppressed by a foreign king. In this instance, it's the Canaanite king that is amongst them still. They um, cry out after 20 years of Sisera, it says in verse 3, he had 900 chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly. I don't know how you... Uh, make oppression worse than just being oppressed, but oppressing them cruelly for 20 years. So it's no wonder that the people of Israel cry out and he raises up a, a judge for them. And in this instance, it's Deborah. It's really beautiful. And we're going to unpack that in just a moment. But here's what's happening, right? That's what's happening is this judges cycle that will happen on repeat again and again. I don't know if you remember the great takeaway from last week from Pastor John Lockhart, uh, who's been pastoring in our area for like longer than most of us have been alive. Beautiful takeaway was this. God ultimately, God rescues sinners from our cycle of sin. And God continues to rescue us from our cycle of sin, though we continue to throw the world in chaos, and that continues on in chapters 4 and 5. It is important to note that every word here, every verse in chapter 4 is really important. And so I'm going to unpack a couple that you're going to go, why is that even there? And it will make sense as we go along. Like, what is the deal with this guy named Haber the Kenite? And why is he recording that he basically moved into the desert? What is that about? That will make sense as we go along. But it's really important that he, the author, wastes nothing. Every verse has a purpose, perfectly composed to tell the story with anticipation for the people of Israel and a lot of irony. You'll see that this guy, Sisera, was a bad dude. Um, you'll see in chapter 5, um, I'll just read it now so I'll save my time later because I'm already there. This is out of order, but we'll just go with it. But you see in chapter 5, verse 29, Sisera gets defeated in war. We already saw that. Um, Deborah sings this song of victory, of God's great victory. And in this song, she recounts Sisera's mother looking out the window longingly for her son to return from war. 
she's wondering, why is it taking so long? Why is it that he hasn't returned yet? She doesn't know that his head is driven into the ground with a tent peg. She doesn't know that yet. And so what most people think is that Sisera's harem, because that's how he rolled, and we'll see how he rolled. Sisera's harem is there to remind her in verse 29, um, excuse me, verse 28. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? What's taking him so long? And his harem basically says this. Her wisest princesses answer, indeed she answers herself, have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoiled of dyed materials for Sisera. Spoiled of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. That's poetic work uh, words for this. Does it not take a lot of time to plunder and take advantage of a woman or two? Does it not just take some time to spoil, to, to divide up what they're up to and ruin the lives of the women that have survived war? It takes a little time, you'll remember. He'll be along any moment now when he gets done pillaging, when he gets done violating the ladies. That's the accepted reign of terror that Sisera has continued to reign with over the people of Israel. It's no wonder they're crying out. So when we see this, we have, to, we have to remember, God is going to win our victories. It may take some time, but God will win, and he has won, and in his victory, he gets the credit. He will get the glory for when he makes things right once again. We need to keep the main things the main things, though, in this passage, just like the author does. Because ultimately, that is how we fight against idolatry by keeping the main things the main things. When we elevate second and third things to first things, that's idolatry. When we take good things and make them an ultimate thing, that's idolatry. And it happens in churches all throughout the world. It's happening right now in this moment in a friend of mine's church in Oklahoma. He is being removed from his pastorate today, this week, because he has a different viewpoint on the spiritual gifts than the rest of the elders. He has faithfully pastored that church for 11 years, and he is being removed today. And my heart breaks for him, and my heart breaks for any of us who are elevating second or third things, such as spiritual gifts. That's not the first thing. Here's a man who's given his life to preach the Bible to them, and they're taking that away because they don't agree with him on something. It is not the most important thing. That's called idolatry. We have to remember that as we go through this story. So let's just set this up. The first thing I want to talk about is a distraction. But I'm going to spend some time on the distraction because I think we might be distracted by it. And what is that distraction? But gender roles. It is not the main point of this story, but it is a point that I want to make uh, ultimately because I think that it's important for us. We are in the process, if you didn't see this, didn't hear this, elder candidacy is amongst us in our church, and it should be no surprise to you that they're all males. Um, this is the controversy of the controversy. Are you ready? We are a complementarian church. Um, no, one, no, one, no one reacted with a gasp, uh, at least not out loud. Uh, but anytime we talk about this from the stage, um, usually people don't return. 
Um, I remember very early on in our church, I remember us to unpacking what it meant for to, to be an elder here at this church. And there was a woman in the back that just got up, packed her family up, and left. And this was not a stranger. She led our orphan ministry at the time. And she never came back. And I remember running into her. She ghosted us. I remember running into her in the parking lot at Kroger. And I was like, hey, where you been? And they were like, well, ever since you said this, we just couldn't return. And I was like, that's such a second or third or fourth thing but i understand let's unpack it i wish we had the chance though to have a conversation so we had that conversation in the parking lot and light bulbs went off in her head and she went oh and i was like yeah but let me just have that conversation we are a complementarian church what that means so we believe that god made male and female with equal dignity in his image and yet we have distinct complementary roles in the home and in the church i am a father i am not a mother she is uh, the mother of our children and not the father. They are not interchangeable. They are different, yet we are both equally create, created uh, with God's uh, image. We both have equal dignity in the home, but just different uh, complementary roles. They are different and yet equally valuable. We are not egalitarian. This is theological categories for us, but we are not egalitarian. Basically, with a broad stroke, and it's not fair for anybody that's egalitarian in here, I'll just broad stroke this, that men and women are not, that they are not only equal in value, but also enabled to fill one another's roles in the home and therefore in the church. And this bleeds out into female pastors, female elders, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where we are as a church. I want you to know that because the egalitarian um, movement, which I'm not in, and so again, this is probably unfair, but I'll just, I'll try to go there as graciously and concisely as possible. They will use the story of Deborah and go, look at that. There it is. There is a woman leading God's people in the Bible, and therefore, all these other conclusions are true. That's a, a fair assessment, a fair observation. However, not the point. Do you see why I'm saying we need to keep the first things the first things and not let second or third or fourth things start to take over? Um, because what is the point? Well, I want you to just see a couple of things in this. And as I do, I want to kind of like teach you how to read the Bible a little bit to equip you uh, some. And so we have to ask ourselves questions like in uh, Judges chapter 4, is this descriptive or prescriptive? Is this a description of how things went down, or is this a prescription of how God wants things to go down? Which one is this? Is this a, now God is saying, this is how I want things to go, or is he saying, and this is how things went? You, you, you have to look at that and make an honest, uh, an honest observation about what you see in all of that. But we must discern whether or not passages like this on all levels, gender roles, violence in religion, um, slavery, uh, all the sorts of things that are very difficult in the Bible to unpack, are they intended to describe what, he, what has happened or to prescribe what God wants to happen? Does this passage show you what God recommends or what the Bible simply reports? You have to make that decision. The second thing that I want you to see on how to read the Bible is this categories of exegesis or eisegesis. Will you take from the Bible what's there and wring it of all its truth? Or you come to the Bible with your own lenses of what you want to be there and impose that into the text. When you exegete, it means taking out of. When you eisegete, it means putting into. We want to be good exegetes of the scripture, and we want to remove as much eisegesis as possible in our lives. But when you read this text, do you see God blessing Deborah as the leader of Israel? 
Or do you see Deborah being the judge, which is an amazing thing, being a prophetess, also an amazing thing, who also looks at her male counterpart and says, I can't do what you're, you need to do, Barak. I need you to go and fight a war. That's what you read. Let's look at verse 4, I, so, I suppose. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth. By the way, are we not naming our children Lapidoth anymore? Uh, anyways, the wife of Lapidoth was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country, because they're always in the hill country, y'all, of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Awesome! Keep reading. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? You have some responsibility here, Barak. I'm not going to do what you're called to do. She's a prophetess. She's a judge. She's not the warrior. She doesn't fit the mold of these warriors and judges so far. All of them so far and all of them after are these warriors, these generals. Deborah, the judge, is not a warrior and not a general. She's the judge. She's a prophetess. It's a little bit different. She relies on her male counterpart in this whole thing. Dare I say, it's complementarian. The third thing I want you to see is this, this idea of false dichotomy, that if we say that we believe that the Bible tells us that a church should be governed by qualified males, that doesn't mean that women are somehow worthless. That's not true. Deborah's a prophetess, and so are many other women in the Bible. Anna was a prophetess as she waited for the coming of the birth of the Messiah in Luke chapter 2. She stayed in the temple day and night, and she was described as a prophetess. Those that were in the Corinthian church, we will read in our growth groups, there were females prophesying in the gathering, and that was not condemned. Instead, it was commended and given order. You see, you have to understand, it doesn't mean one, if, if this means this, and that also must mean that. No, women were also God's first missionaries after the resurrection. Women play a prominent role in leadership in the church then, and women play a prominent role in leadership now. But there are exclusions, just like there are for men. Did you know that it's not every male can be an elder? You have to be a qualified male. You actually have to have, to have the character that holds up the role. Did you know that not all males or females can take over and be a deacon? You have to be a qualified male or female. And yes, we believe that deacons absolutely should be filled by, by females. Because we see Phoebe, we have seen an example of that specific office being uh, filled in Romans chapter 16. So you see all of this. Women play a huge and important role, but it does not usurp the male role in Barak. It reminds us that this, though, is not the point. It is a distraction. But because I know we're in the world of podcasts and blogs and you name it that we'll get uh, drawn into, if it's not today, it'll be tomorrow. If it's not tomorrow, it was yesterday when you were looking at all this. But there's got to be clarity from the Scriptures. So if that's not the point, I must move on. We have a lot to uncover and yet a little uh, time to do it. So let me just say this. This is really the point. God is glorified in this story. And you see his glory the more you look at the details. 
God is glorified in these details. Some may say that the devil is in the details, but that is not the case when we see the narrative of the Bible or the details of your own story. How God moves every piece of this chess game on the board is really remarkable. And he does it through flawed, limited individuals, including this murderer named Jael, who is blessed in the song of Deborah in chapter 5. What a fascinating world we're in. See, Barak, he is being used. He's a military warrior who didn't want to go without his contemporary, his female contemporary, Deborah, who she describes herself as the mother of Israel. And so he wants mom to hold his hand as he goes out to war, and he will not go without her. And ultimately he says, look, like, it's ultimately this. Uh, he, he has a little bit of cowardice. He has a little bit of doubt, but he's certainly manipulating God when he says uh, that, that ultimately he's not taking God at his word when God says that he will ultimately, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon. Don't forget that detail. He will meet him by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. You have Barak being used in all of this, and you'll start to see these details come into place. You've got Deborah, who went with him to ensure victory because she was a prophetess. She ultimately represented God's presence with him. She reminded Barak of the initial call in verse 5, which we've already read, but she also reminded Barak to win of the timing on when to execute that call in verse 14 when she said this, and Deborah said to Barak, up! <laughs> I don't know about you, but if that ever happened in my marriage, I would sit! Up! Uh, but that's not what happens in Barak and in Deborah. Up! That's my favorite. I think that's my favorite word in this whole story. I don't know why. Up! Uh, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you. Yes, it's Deborah doing these beautiful things, reminding us it is the Lord who will get the glory in all of this. Deborah, oh Deborah, stands out as a light amidst the darkness and a breath of fresh air amidst the pollutants of burning altars to false gods. Deborah's a really beautiful character, and she stands out easily as the best judge in all of Israel during the time of the judges. Praise be to God, because he gets the glory. But key to understanding this passage um, isn't just their roles in the story. It is to look at these obscure three verses right here in the middle. That's how we see God getting glory in these details. Let me read, you for, uh, read them for you. Verses 11, 12, and 13. And you're going to go, wow, this is, I don't even know, but we're going to put it together. Now, Haber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father of Mo Moses, and had pitched his tent far away as, uh, as the oak in Zanana, which is near Kadesh. Okay? For those of you not reading along, you didn't get the joke, but that's okay. That means three people are reading along. All right. I need more of you guys to dig in here. Verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out to his chariots, 900 chariots of iron. If you remember back in chapter 1, Judah did not want to take down these chariots because they were terrified of them. So he goes, and all the men who were with him, from Harasheth Hagayim to the river Kishon. What is happening in these little tiny verses that make no sense other than the verses around them? Let's connect some dots. Verse 
13, which I just read, Sisera called out all of his chariots, 900 of them, and all the men who are with him from this place over to the river Kishon. If you set the scene, Sisera's 900 iron chariots, these again are the same chariots that Judah was afraid of, and Barak has 10,000 men. You might think those are pretty good odds, 10,000 versus 900, until you start to remember on every chariot was at least two or three men. So now it's 10,000 versus like maybe 2,700. And they're riding iron chariots who would just slice through this makeshift militia. If you keep reading in chapter 5, what you'll find is that they didn't have shields in Israel at this time. There was no sword. There was no shield. They were defenseless. It was a militia of farmers. It was probably literally in our day and age of, of, of military tactics. It's like revolutionary war militia of farmers standing up in a line with ready aim fire tactics against tanks. They're not going to last. They're not going to do well, right? So something has to give in all of this. And what we find is that ultimately the people that have the tanks lose. How? How in the world did that happen? They were struck by the edge of the sword in verse 15. How are you on a chariot being struck by the sword? Makes no sense. Well, what you find is that Kishon was a river which apparently was dry when Sisera arrived, but at just the right time, with all the pieces in just the right place, God does something amazing. Flip over to chapter 5, verse 21. Look at what God does. The torrent, Kishon, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent, Kishon, march on my soul with might. What do we read from that? At just the right time, when they're in the tent and Barak and Deborah are talking about, is now the right time? It starts to rain. And it floods the riverbed at Kishon where the 900 chariots are. And it makes a muck and mire that disables ultimately his greatest weapon. They can't move on those chariots anymore. And Deborah looks at that and goes, up. <laughs> Has not the Lord given you, given them into your hand? You better go now, dude. Now's the time. And so he gets up and he goes to war and they can't move those chariots so they have to get off the chariots and now it's 10,000 versus 2,700 and it's no wonder that they all lost. It's no wonder that Sisera says, I'm out. Great courageous general he is. And he flees. And then we get this other little detail. Where does the rain come from? Who sends the rain, folks? How is God getting the glory in all of this? Except he is the one orchestrating every little detail so that the victory of his people will be realized. That's the first beautiful picture that we see in these details. We keep connecting verse 11 with 17. Now, again, Haber the Canaanite had separated from the Kenites and, he, and his descendants and mother, uh, the father-in-law of Moses, and he pitched a tent as far away as the oak at Zananah, again, which is near Kadesh. What does this guy's U-Haul have to do with God's victory? Like, what is going on in the desert? Why is this something that's noted? Oh, if we keep reading in verse 17, look. Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of the guy that moved into the desert. 
There was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazar, and the, king of, and the house of Haber the Kenite. So Jael comes out to meet Sisera, and he says, Oh, my Lord, peace be among thee. Come on in. A lot of people in the Kenite world and the Kenite tribes probably worshipped the God of Israel, saw all of the pain for the last 20 years that Sisera put on the people of Israel, right? And she invites him into her tent with one intention, murder. It's pretty amazing, right? But all of a sudden, this parenthetical statement in verse 11 starts to show us God's beautiful, perfectly timed providence for victory. We had no other reason why verse 11 is there, and yet it's God's will that these people would move out into the desert to be available and ready for Sisera to run and flee, looking for refuge. But instead, he found the irony of all ironies. Whereas for 20 years, he took the innocence and and the bodies of females all over Israel. Now here we are, a lone woman, taking his life under the direction of another woman named Deborah. What beautiful writing in the book of Judges. You see, for us, friends, don't ever diminish a small thing like where God has placed you. Some of you, me included, never thought you'd end up here, but here you are. Some of you never thought that you'd be in this church. Ah, man, I don't know about that church planting thing. That's rough. That's, that's some tough work. And yet here you are. Some of you may go to India and back and tell the story of the heart we should all have that I think is here in just a moment that I'll unpack. We must serve. There's no, there's no option about it. We have to step in. But God's, ultimately, your parenthesis is God's providence in your life. No matter where you are, no matter how length of time, how much time you are there, baseball field, softball field, in your job, in your neighborhood, at HEB, you are called and God has orchestrated the exact encounters he wants you to have. It is just a matter of whether or not we will have eyes to see what he's up to. Now, I'm not saying go and be like Jael. That's weird. You can't have a tent peg in your hand to drive into the skull of your enemy. That's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. That's the way of Jesus. This is yet unfolding in the time of judges. But what we may count as insignificant, God is ultimately writing as part of his sovereignty. So friends, can you see moments of your life that seemed like a a parenthesis only to look back and see God's providence? Can you see that this week? If you cannot see that, just, just ask the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit to help you see what he's been orchestrating in the pain, what he's been up to in the difficulties, or in the triumphs that you've experienced in the last week, month, year, or however long. Look back with eyes from chapter 5 that go, Lord, what have you been doing amidst all the chaos that I've been experiencing? Let me invite you to take a look at the details so that God can get honor and glory in your life. And so finally, I end with this. What is our takeaway in all of this? And I think it's simple. And I also think it's from the text. And I think you probably could guess it at this point. But we are called to glorify God. And you may go, well, how should we do that? 
two things that I think in the chapter five are helpful. One is step up, and the other one is sing. What do you mean? Well, in uh, this whole thing, I've already outlined for you the badness of Sisera, right? I've already outlined for you his plunder and his violation of others. Um, But if you were in Israel and you heard the call out from Deborah and Barak to go to war, you had a choice. Do I go with him, trusting that this land of misfit toys is going to lead us to victory? Is that where I'm going to be? Or do I just stay home and put my hands and thoughts to practical matters? And it may not be for us this victory that needs to be won on the war, but It could be mission work, it could be serving the orphan, it could be forgiving our enemies, it could be a host and a myriad of multiple things that God might be calling you to do, that you just find practical reasons not to do it. You see, in this passage, you start to find that in chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, Reuben and Asher and Dan and Gilead, or Gad, they all stayed home. They counted sheep, literally, and they stayed by the ports, and they counted ships, and those ships just meant economic success. Oh, we'll make the best of it under this maniacal leader that we have named Sisera. We'll just kind of make ends meet and just avoid, keep our heads down, and we'll be fine. Or you could step up, and you could be praised. Because ultimately, that's really what's before us. Verse 23, there are curses being sent over Miraz. We don't know where, know where Miraz is, but most people think it's this kind of like Texarkana where all these places kind of meet of Gad and Reuben and all these places, right? We don't really know, but that's the idea. The curse Miraz in verse 23 says the angel of the Lord cursed its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to help the Lord. They did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. I don't know what you think about your life or your participation of the Christian life, but it is no less than coming to the help of the Lord. This mighty God who will get glory, who fights our battles for us, who defeated sin, death, and the devil on the cross, doesn't need our help, but he wants it. He wants us to heed the call to participate with whatever it is that he's doing to bring his kingdom to the earth. So if we sit it out, the danger is, I'm not saying cursed be you and double cursed be you, but we run the risk, don't we? That we don't see our hand in helping the hand of the Lord against the mighty. And this isn't a cultural war, so don't hear me saying this is your political enemies or your cultural enemies or your sexual preference enemies. That is not the point. The point is we're all in a battle against our enemy, not against flesh 
and blood, Paul would say in Ephesians 6, but against the princes and the powers and the rulers of this world who are spiritual, and that is the devil, and that is his minions, and that is the power over us that the flesh has over us and temptation that the world brings our way on a regular basis. So will we sit it out and just go, oh, well, come what may, we'll just make do underneath this rule of Satan here. We'll just keep our heads down and not get in too much sin. Or we help one another out like those that are magnified in the story of Deborah and Barak, that they're named uh, truly by name, Zebulun and Issachar and Ephraim and Benjamin and Deborah and Barak and even Jael is commended as those who helped the Lord. May we step up into the inconvenient, into the seemingly insignificant where the world will give you no credit at all. And if you go online and brag about it, Jesus says, you've received your reward in full. It's not going to be a place where you get glory. It's not going to be a place where you get position. It's not going to be a place where you get recognized. That's the great disease of American Christianity, rotting our bones as we know it. But instead, we will go to a place where we will not try to save our lives, but lose it for the sake of finding Christ. Yes, this is what we are all in for. Judges 5.31 tells us, last verse and then we're done, maybe. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. May all your enemies perish. The Lord's enemies, not your enemies. May all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as, the, as he rises in his might. May we stand up. May we step up into the war against, again, our greatest enemies. And as we do, may we sing a song of God's victory. You want to know why we sing? Isn't that a weird thing? It's a weird thing when you think about it. You just step back and go, why do we sing on Sundays? Like of all the things we could do, why do we sing? Deborah knows. Deborah says it right here in chapter 5, if I could find it, because it's just off the top of my head, but here it is. Chapter 5, verse 11. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord. You want to know what Carissa does week in and week out? She repeats and leads us in the repetition of the triumph of the mighty God that we serve. That's why we sing. It's beautiful, and it's right. And I'm not saying we just sing, but let's find the song of victory hidden in our hearts over what God has done for us individually and corporately, and let's sing the song so the world around us that we truly have some hope. They need it. We need it. We've got to find the lyrics of the song that God's put in our hearts. And dare I say it's in the scriptures, in these crazy passages, like, I don't know, man, what is up with Sister and Jael? Oh, may we find beauty in God's victory, no matter how obscure it is or how beautiful it is in our hearts. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful and we love you. We all have enemies in this room. And we all, if we're real honest about it, we like to take a peg some days and drive it through the temple of our enemy.
but you didn't treat us that way. We were your enemies. We were the Ciceras. We weren't the Debras or the Baraks or the Jails. We were the oppressors against your son. We were the ones that oppressed you with great terror. We sinners, we who continue to choose to be okay with putting nails in your hands and feet. And you chose not to put a peg through our skulls. You chose to die so that we could live. We all like sheep have gone astray. Not one of us do good. But you are a shepherd that calls yourself good and prove it over and over again. For all who are here and in the sheepfold and we know your voice, we praise you, God, for the victory you've secured on our behalf. For those of us that are perhaps just wandering around the sheep, wondering if they could ever get into your sheepfold, today's the day of salvation. Let them not be satisfied with being close. Let them only be satisfied by being purchased and brought into the sheepfold where we get to know our good shepherd. We know your voice. We know your love. And we know your care. You tell us in your word, Lord, for all of us that want to take vengeance against our enemies. You say in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's only because you have done this for us that you then go and tell us to go do it for others. May this root down in our hearts deeply. And may we sing as a result. In Jesus' name do I pray, amen.